Now for this month's special series on ReachMD, focus on future medicine. We're looking ahead to pivotal breakthroughs and technologies that will transform healthcare in the coming years. A newly discovered gene mutation has been linked to male infertility. How might this new evidence help physician scientists create new infertility treatments as well as a male contraceptive? You are listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today to talk about the genetics of male infertility, clues to a male contraceptive, is Dr. Michael Hildenbrand, fellow in the Department of Otolaryngology at the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Hildenbrand. Well, thank you for having me. Well, tell us how we got looking at the genetics of infertility, because I know from what you've told me, your lab really looks at the genetics of hearing. Sure. So, yeah, in our laboratory, we study a, a number of different genetic diseases, and, and although hearing is, is the main one, we also uh, focus on kidney diseases. In this case, we focus on infertility as well. And we identify the mutations in the Katzberg 1 gene in two Iranian families in which some males had infertility. How did we go from hearing to identifying these families? As part of our research, we look at a large number of, of different families, and, and many of these families will, will just have hearing loss as the phenotype, but some of them will also have additional phenotypes. For example, there are patients that have deafness and infertility syndrome, and in this particular case, we, we actually identified two families that were just segregating infertility. Okay, so they did not have hearing issues, but they did have infertility. Exactly. And were there particular characteristics of these two families that made you want to look at them, that they might have the same genetic problem? Yes. So both of these families were from Iran, and they were both consanguineous or inbred families. And, th and that means that they have a much higher rate of genetic diseases, and that was the reason that we were looking at those particular families in the first case. You mentioned this Katzberg gene. That's a gene that we know is involved with sperm motility. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So dating back to, to 2001, that gene was implicated in mouse models to be involved in male infertility. We knew that, that knockout uh, mouse models where the Casper 1 gene was knocked out, we knew that those mice had uh, infertility. So that had already been shown, but no one had been able to demonstrate mutations in, in human patients with infertility, and that's what we've done. So can you describe the process? You, you sequenced the particular genes on certain chromosomes and, and found this mutation? Exactly. So we, we were able to actually look at the two families. We had individuals who were infertile and we had individuals with, with normal fertility. And we were able to use the DNA from both those sets of, of individuals. We were able to compare their DNA. We were able to, to map the location of the underlying genetic cause of the infertility in the affected patients to a particular mutation in this Casper 1 gene. I'm a general internist, so I'm certainly not an expert in this field, but I, I would think that this may be one of of many types of problems that could lead to male infertility, or is this a very predominant cause? So this is likely to be a, a more rare type of infertility. We know that there are approximately 15% of couples have difficulty or have fertility issues, and of those 15%, approximately half those cases are, are due to male infertility. And we know that there are a lot of different causes. For example, we know that infertility is associated with mutations in, in the CFTR gene that, of course, causes cystic fibrosis. We know that, that male individuals with cystic fibrosis have an increased risk of, of being infertile. We also know that, that deletions on the Y chromosome are, are a common cause of infertility in males as, as well. So the Casper 1-related infertility is probably a, a rarer kind of 
male infertility, but it's one that we, we need to investigate further in, in a much larger number of, of infertility patients. And are most of the problems with male infertility related to single gene mutations, or are there some that are more complex and, and involve several genes interacting? So more of them are associated with a complex situation, for example, with those Y chromosome deletions where more than one gene is, is affected. So it's more typically a, a complex genetic situation. And then, of course, into, in addition to that, we have environmental etiologies for male infertility as well. Chemical exposures or... Exactly, chemical exposures, radiation, things like that. Okay, so if I can paraphrase, and please correct me if I'm not doing this correctly, you decided to look at these two families because it was a chance to show a previously identified mutation that was found in mice in humans. And even though it's not the, the most common, this Casper gene mutation is something that potentially could have some therapeutic value and value in understanding male infertility. Sure. So it wasn't exactly the same mutation in mice. Obviously, the mice were, were a knockout, and this was a different mutation that we found in these two families. But yes, the idea was to, to look for single gene defects. There have been a couple, but, but not many, single genes associated with male infertility. So we wanted to really add to our, our knowledge and, and identify new potential targets for treating patients with male infertility as well as for the potential to generate a male contraceptive as well. I see. I understand. And in terms of treatment of these particular families, now that a genetic defect has been identified, does that then translate or lead to some type of therapeutic intervention? Certainly, it suggests there's the potential for that kind of intervention in the future. And the kind of intervention that I'm, I'm thinking about is, is, you know, a gene a replacement strategy. And of course, that strategy is not available in the clinic at this stage, but it's certainly an active area of clinical research. And so what we'd envisage is at some point in the future when that, that kind of technology is available that we could actually replace the defective, in this case, Casper one gene. We could put that gene back into the sperm of affected patients in these families. And, and if we were able to do that in an effective and in a safe way, then that has the potential to return fertility to those individuals. Absolutely. Could it even be done in a cell in, in the testicle such that the normal cells would reproduce and, and produce normal sperm? Yes, it could, be, it could be potentially done in that way. And certainly there's already been at least one study in the laboratory using both human and, and mice sperm that's shown that there is some potential to really manipulate those cells, not specifically associated with cats for one at this stage, but there certainly is the potential to do that in vitro. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me talking about the genetics of male infertility, clues to a male contraceptive, is Dr. Michael Hildenbrand, fellow in the Department of Otolaryngology at the Carver College of Medicine, University of Iowa in Iowa City. Dr. Hildenbrand, let's move then from the infertility to kind of, in my mind, flipping it around. How might this lead to some development of male contraceptives? So since the Casper one protein is now really a new target for a potential male contraceptive, the idea would be to, to look at different drugs, for example, an antibody approach or what we call an immunocontraception approach could potentially be used whereby we would take a particular antibody and we would test initially in vitro and then, of course, in, in animal models to see whether using uh, such an antibody could actually block the activity of the Casper one protein and prevent its function. Of course, there's a number of things that we'd have to address you know, in the experimental situation before we could potentially apply it to, to clinical trials. We'd have to look at 
at whether we can actually develop a drug that can effectively target and, and, and block the activity of that CATSPO1 protein. We'd also have to show that it's a reversible process. Obviously, if we want to develop a male contraceptive, then if it was to have any advantage over the vasectomy approach, then it would have to be reversible so that, for example, the male, while taking the particular drug, would be infertile, but then after a certain period of time a ceasing administration of the drug, then the fertility would have to return. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Are there products like this that might be available either in an injectable form or would you envision it to be an oral medication eventually? Yes, so there's no product like the one I've described available at the moment on the market. Ideally, it has been shown with the female version of contraception, which has been available and successfully used for over 40 years now. Uh, it would be preferable if it, was, uh, if it could be taken in, in an oral form. And we don't know yet whether for the immunocontraception approach, whether we'd be able to deliver it in, in oral form or whether it would have to be in an injectable form. That's something we'd have to determine. We'd have to develop uh, an antibody that would turn off this Catsper gene and do so in a, a controlled, reversible form. Other than the immunologic approach, would there be possibly other approaches to turning off this gene? The immunocontraceptive approach is, is the most attractive in the sense that it is a transient approach. You can imagine that, that only while the antibody is there and it can bind to the protein that it would be interfering with its function. And when it's no longer there and not bound, then obviously normal function would return. Another possibility, but one which is perhaps less attractive, would be to use some kind of channel blocker. So the Casper one gene that we're talking about, it encodes a, a protein, which is a, actually a calcium channel. So it's involved in the transport of calcium in the sperm and in sperm motility. And so if we could develop a particular drug that was a specific blocker, of the calcium transport by the Casper one channel, then this could also be used. But at present, we don't have a, a specific uh, channel blocker. We only have blockers or drugs that will block all different types of, of calcium channels rather than just the Casper one channel. And we obviously, we don't want to block any other calcium channel because that could have, obviously, adverse effects. Absolutely. And is, is there anything about the Casper one mutation that we're talking about that makes it a particularly attractive target versus some of the other muta gene mutations you had mentioned? The only thing that makes it perhaps more attractive, in, in, in a number of cases you can have mutations, and I'm particularly talking about dominant mutations here, where rather than having a, a loss of function, you can have a, a gain of function. And that's potentially a more difficult situation to think about therapeutically. In, in this case where we have a loss of function, you can imagine a gene replacement strategy where we just have to put that gene in and to return that particular function. But in, in the case of some dominant uh, mutations, you have to actually look at kind of you know, blocking or eliminating that new function that's created. So I think these types of mutations that are associated with recessive genetic diseases are more attractive candidate for that kind of approach. And in terms of next steps, what might the next steps be? Is your lab going to be pursuing this angle that we've been discussing? As I mentioned, it's mainly focused on you know, genetic diseases. And, and one of the things that we really are interested in doing is really extending this study, looking at other families and individuals with male infertility and, and determining the prevalence of mutations in, in this Casper 1 gene and also in other members of the family. So I haven't mentioned, but the Casper the family consists of four different genes that encode four different calcium channels. And we haven't looked at the other three Casper uh, uh, channels to see whether or not they are also involved in male infertility. We know there is some evidence that Casper 2, the second member of the family, is involved 
We know that there are deletions which involve that gene as well as other genes in, in patients with a syndromic presentation that also includes male infertility. So that suggests that we really need to look at those other genes that are related genes to see if they're also involved. And that's really the direction that, that our lab's going to take initially. And we'll certainly consider looking at developing uh, antibodies, but although this is not really our uh, area of expertise, but there are other people in the field who will be, uh, I'm sure, pursuing, and, and there's at least one paper that's already looking at, targeting Casper 1 for, as, a, as, a, as a male contraceptive. And should we, uh, as, as many primary care physicians across the country may hear this, should we be looking in our patients for male infertility and, and looking to refer them to your lab or to other places? Yeah, absolutely. So there's already, not just at our institution, but also at other tertiary uh, hospitals around the country, there's also already testing available, particularly for the male infertility that's associated with deletions on the Y chromosome and also for, obviously, genetic testing for cystic fibrosis. So in both those cases, there's already uh, services available at different institutions. In addition, we'll start in the near future offering clinical diagnostics or screening for Casper 1 mutations as well, and potentially the other members of the Casper families, uh, families moving uh, forward into the future. And let me ask one last question. How many years away are we from an oral contraceptive uh, that males can take? It's definitely an area of active research, and I think probably we're looking at at least five years down the track uh, before such a, a product becomes available, and that may or may not be one that's targeted at this particular protein. But I envisage that not too far into the future there will be such a product available for men. And, and importantly, there's been studies already done that have shown if, if such a product was available that, that men would certainly be interested in using it. That is very interesting and, and exciting news. I very much want to thank my guest from the University of Iowa's Carver College of Medicine, Dr. Michael Hildenbrand, who's been discussing with us a newly discovered genetic mutation that's been linked to male infertility. Uh, he discussed this mutation and how its identification may lead to therapies that could eventually end up in an oral male contraceptive pill in the years down the road. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please also visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Future Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.